We're going to read from Hebrews, I'm actually going to read to you from Hebrews 10, 36, but we're really focusing on those first three verses at the beginning of Hebrews 11. So we'll just read from the top of the page. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So God is saying that in light of the fact that Jesus has promised that he will return, that not everything is going to carry on forever as it is, he says we are people who need to press on in the full conviction that just as his resurrection is a certain thing, and just as his ascension into heaven was a certain thing, a thing so compelling that it birthed the early church, and a world-changing movement that is getting more and more like a snowball gathering more steam with every passing year and every passing century. As certain as that event was, so is it certain that Jesus will return. And so we are those who cling on to the future. We have, as he says elsewhere in this book, we have an anchor of hope that goes behind the curtain. We, we believe in things that aren't yet, haven't yet happened. And that's why Christians run hard after stuff which uh, compels us to live different lives, compels us to live lives of service to God. And he says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We want to keep believing. That's all it means. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We are going to be spending a little bit of time just on this whole idea of faith and what faith is and why Christians need faith. And so we're spending a couple of months in this whole idea, running hard after it, trying to understand it, trying to let our lives and hearts be shaped by it. And one of the reasons is that I think that there is no part of the Christian life that isn't touched by your degree of faith in God. And uh, you think about the state of your, your spiritual walk. Uh, it is basically a reflection of how much you trust God and how much you have faith in Him. And so to be those who want to live godly lives and live even great lives before God and His assessment, we must grow in our faith. And there's no other way of growing as a Christian. To grow in faith is to grow in, your, in maturity as a Christian. But also, obviously, we're a fairly new church, um, been around a couple of years, and you know, when I think about what we're seeking to do and the task that is in front of us, um, it is impossible unless God's with us. I, I know that I can't change a person's life, but I also know that the gospel can do an incredible thing in people's lives. It's changed us, hasn't it? When we come to know who Jesus is, we've been changed and transformed. So we're always putting our trust in what God can do, not only to change individuals, but help us as a church, to help us impact our community, to help us impact our friends and neighbors and loved ones, to help us just with very practical stuff, like one day maybe God will give us a building that we can call our own, and maybe we'll be able to train up pastors, send out and plant other churches, and maybe we'll send people into other parts of the world who haven't known or heard about Jesus. And, you know, none of that's possible unless we have faith in, in the Lord Amen. and trust Him. So I think gr- growing in faith is going to help you 
personally, but it's also going to help us in what we're seeking to do as a church together. So here we are. We're going to sort of drill into this idea of what faith is from these verses in the beginning of chapter 11, just these first three verses at the beginning of chapter 11. And I want to begin with this question, which we haven't really addressed much yet up to now, and it's just the question, what is faith? He says at the beginning there, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you can say this about faith, that faith is a, something that you, a kind of a sensation in a sense, something that you hold down in your gut, an assurance, a conviction. I know many of us have assurances and convictions about all kinds of things and causes and beliefs and all kinds of st- things that control the way we live and what we live for, and that's faith. But he says about faith that it's also a deep down conviction about stuff that you haven't seen or that indeed hasn't even happened yet. Things that you've only hoped for and that by definition you you can't prove in a sense. Faith is that. Now, I know at some point you're going to meet someone who's going to say to you, now this is the problem I have with Christianity. This is it. Faith is this leap into the unknown. You're kind of making up beliefs about the future or about God, things that you've never seen, and making a guiding reality of your life. I know that some of the atheists love to talk about how you know, it's, it's, it's equivalent to believing in, in uh, fairies at the end of your garden. No one's ever seen them, but you know, I can believe that they're there. And I want, to get to this, I want to get to this a little bit later and just think about, well, is faith, is faith that? Is faith totally unreasonable, that it's just a leap into the dark? It's completely unintelligent and completely irrational. And, you know, we're going to get to that a little bit later. But at this point, I just want to say, actually, yes, it can be. Because when he says here that faith is this assurance, this conviction, he doesn't say that it, you're necessarily right about the things you're assured about, the things you're convicted by. You know, a lot of people believe all kinds of weird stuff in the world because they have some kind of faith. This explains why we have a massive diversity of religions in the world. Yes, they're all exercising faith, and not everybody can be right. You don't even have to believe in God to be exercising faith. There's all kinds of things we believe on a day-to-day basis that we've never seen, and things that we hope for that we have no control over. So faith, in that sense, is a neutral thing. You can have faith without being right. You know, a lot of people crack open the newspapers every day to read their horoscope. And I think there's no ground to it, but they have faith in it. They think it's true. They think it's speaking right into their heart. As people have faith that they're going to make it to work every morning. They don't know the future. They don't know what's going to happen. There's no guarantee of these things. But we believe things that we hope for, things that we've not seen. We do it all the time on a day-to-day basis. It's quite a normal thing. But also, of course, faith can be a bit cuckoo. Sometimes people can believe the craziest, most ridiculous things. And this is where a lot of people have reacted and said, listen, if faith is just this irrational approach to life, then we don't need faith. We're only going to go by what we can see and touch and smell and prove. And I just want to encourage you, friends, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because there's all kinds of weird beliefs out there doesn't mean that faith in itself is, is a bad thing. You think about it, that What's the opposite of faith based on what he's saying here? He's saying it's a total lack of assurance, approaching life with doubt, like a profound doubt, a profound skepticism about everything except what you can see and touch and prove. 
It's a profound pessimism, really, about the future because any number of awful scenarios could take place. I think this is why fear has gripped our nation about the recent referendum. It's because no one's actually in control of the future if you don't know God. And therefore, pessimism and fear is going to control your thoughts and your life. Unless, of course, you think you can take control. And of course, so to discard faith altogether is to lead basically a meaningless life, I think. That's why Spurgeon said of this chapter, he said, in this chapter we read the wonders of faith, but I have never read a chapter setting forth the wonders of unbelief. Unbelief is barren, impotent, a mere negation, a dead and a cursed thing. But faith bears fruit. Faith produces good works. Faith achieves marvels. So, okay, there's good faith and bad faith. There's all kinds of faith you have in the world. People believe all kinds of things. What is it then that's unique about Christian faith? Which I guess is what he's talking about here, because it's synthesis is the Bible. What is it that's unique about our faith? What's it, what is it that sets it apart, that makes it something that we can ba- build our whole lives upon and risk everything for? Listen, I want to tell you what it's not to begin with. It is not just an inherited tradition. Just blind beliefs that you inherited from your parents, from your family, from your culture. We imbibe all kinds of convictions and beliefs that no one ever explained to us, but we take them as given. And some of you have grown up in Christian homes and gone on to church, and that's been kind of the basis of your faith. No one, you've never really grappled with it. That isn't faith, friends, if you just take things as inherited tradition. Nor is faith a kind of a psychological trick. I know a lot of psychology these days is based on trying to convince yourself to believe optimistic and positive things instead of pessimistic and dire things. And sure, that's, that's definitely helpful if you want to live a more happy and rounded life. But that is a step into completely the dark. You're just inventing ideas to then build your life on. It's not that. And nor is it just an intuitive sense about things. You know, this is like, you think about how a lot of people think of Christians as being like Phoebe from Friends, who just believes all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> and it's just her intuition. And a lot of people think that Christians are like that. We're just sort of believing stuff that makes absolutely no sense. And that's not what faith is. The Bible says faith is something very, very specific and very, very clear. It says that faith is always a response to God speaking. That God has opened up something of who he is to us. He doesn't have to, but he has. And he speaks to us in all kinds of ways. That's why I began with Psalm 19 at the beginning. It says that the whole creation, everything in the world is preaching about who God is. His greatness, his power, his eternal nature. That's one way. Another way, of course, is through the Bible itself. The beginning of Hebrews, this book that we're reading, it says long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he says we have a book that tells us something about who God is because God decided to speak. And then he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Faith isn't just a random selection of beliefs that strike you as nice. It's taking God at his word. It's believing his testimony about himself, spoken, preached, shouted at you through the the creation and the universe, but also in very specific ways through the Bible itself and most profoundly through Jesus. And if anyone of you is wrestling with 
this whole issue of like, how can I have more faith? Maybe you're a Christian, you feel your faith is weak. Maybe you're not a Christian. You think, well, how can I believe something that strikes me as odd or maybe even ridiculous? And my answer is, look, you've got to go straight to Jesus. You need to read what the Bible says about him. You need to read his own words. You need to understand his life and grapple with him. I think he's earned that given that he's had such a profound effect on the world regardless of whether he is who he said he is. But if he is who he says he is, that is a reality that ought to grip and transform your life. And I'm not asking you just to select a potpourri of random beliefs. I'm asking you to grapple with just this question. Is Jesus who he said he is? This is what Christian faith is. What it means for us is that we can go through life with a certain confidence. I want you to just think about your own experience of day-to-day life. Are you someone who is fearful, anxious, maybe even paralyzed by your fears, full of dread? He says here that you could have assurance, that you can have conviction. That you, even if it goes against the grain of your nature and your personality and your upbringing and all the things you've been through, you can be a person who has a solid core because in your heart you know Jesus. Are you someone who is maybe just very fearful about the future, pessimistic, full of dread? He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I don't think any Christian should go through life with a sense of dread. Even should the worst thing happen to you, it's not the worst thing if you know Jesus. Your eternity is secure. He has you in his grip. This is why a Christian can go through life. And these Christians, the very ones he was writing to, were suffering in ways that most of us will never experience. He says their property was plundered. They were mocked and abused by the people around them. And the reason why he says to them so optimistically is, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You can be the happiest people in town. It's because you can be held by Christ and hold on to Christ. If you're someone who's profoundly doubtful even in your day-to-day experience of God, maybe you you look inside and you think, there are things that I just struggle to obey God in because of doubt. I don't pray because I'm not sure he listens. I don't, whatever it is. He wants you to have this assurance, this total conviction. This is why we're talking about faith. This is why we need to understand how vital it is for our walk with God. Christian faith is this absolute solid certainty that says, I can rely on God. That's what faith is. And if you can get that into your heart and begin to make progress on that, your whole life will be turned upside down. I want us just to unfold this a little bit more when we read on. Here's another question. We looked at what faith is. Well, let me ask this. Is faith important? Why does faith even matter to God? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I've thought about it many times. Why does God even care that we have faith in him? Why is faith the central plank of what it means to become a Christian? What separates a Christian from a non-Christian is that they have faith in God. Why does that matter to God that you believe in him in that way? Why is it an issue for us? Why is the opposite of faith, unbelief, doubt, fear, all this sort of stuff we've been describing, why is that something that God finds offensive and displeasing? Why does God divide people in that way? Why does he make faith the dividing line? It's a really important question, isn't it? He says here in the second verse, he says that by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. 
To be, com- to be commended, it means that, that, that your, your character has been attested. And it means this, that somehow God has said of them, that he said well done to them. You know when Jesus tells a parable, and he says that, you know, servants serving their master, and the master goes away and then returns, and the ones who serve him well, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the kind of language he's talking about here. He's saying that when, he, when we think about the people of faith who've gone before us, people in the Bible, people in history, he says, the people of old, by their faith, received their commendation by God. God was pleased with their faith more than he was pleased with anything else. And you need to wrestle with the question, well, why? What is it that makes somebody great in the Christian life because they have faith? What is it that God loves about faith? And I want to give you a couple of answers to that. The first is this. Because faith allows you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do for God. Now, I want, you to, I want to invite you to just look into your own heart and your own life and think, how are you weak? How is your Christian life weak? Isn't the weakness that you face and experience always a faith problem? Think about temptation for a minute. You think about the fact that we're called to live godly lives, but so often we experience temptations that we find either massively alluring or even at times overpowering. Why is it that one person will give in to temptation and another person won't? Why is it that you have experienced that? And the answer always is because of faith. The only way you can overcome a temptation, something that seems just massively attractive and alluring and seductive, is that you believe by faith that God has something better for you and a better plan for you. It is always a faith decision. There's nothing mysterious about this. You don't need to agonize about what's going on in your heart. That is it. The simplest thing. It's either do you believe that God's got a good will for you or not. Think about your, your prayer life. And a lot of us, you know, if we're honest, we feel weak in our prayer life. I suspect some of you already decided you're not going to come on Tuesday because you're not sure that you know how to pray and you definitely don't want to pray in public. Why is it that we struggle with prayer? Why is it that it's, it feels like a discipline rather than a delight? Why is it like a duty instead of something that I'm just, I can't get out, wait to get out of bed in the morning and pray and talk to God? Why is that always such a, a challenge for so many of us? And always, always, it just comes down to the difference between faith and unbelief. Now, if, you, if you approach God with uncertainty that he's listening, that he cares, and that he'll do anything because you asked him, then of course, naturally, you're not going to pray. Or if you don't pray, it's because those are your, your deepest convictions. But, if God can somehow displace that unbelief in your heart and replace it with faith, to take God at his word, what has God said about prayer? He said that we should pray and that he listens when we pray. So we trust what he says about prayer. And we take it into our hearts. We take it into the the depths of our being. Our life begins to change, doesn't it? And you can apply this test to every weakness that you experience in the Christian life. You know, are you someone who's who's, who's averse to taking any risks? Whether it's financial or moving somewhere to be part of something that God's doing. Or, you know, you feel like God's been nudging you in a direction, but you won't do it because of fear. What is the difference there? Of course, it's the same thing. It's this pattern of unbelief or or belief. Unbelief or faith. 
every weakness in our Christian walk can be traced back to whether we really trust God or not. If we flip this around and think of it positively, look at your best achievements in life. Look at, your, look at those times when you feel most like I was running after God, I was doing his will, I was obeying him. Or when you think about believers, Christians, who've, who've most had an impact on you personally or on the world in general, the people you most admire, isn't everything you admire about them rooted in their faith? The people who are most generous. I can think of stories in my own life of just profoundly generous people who, you know, just out of the blue have shared with me out of the stuff that they have when I most needed it. Like when I was going to start my MA and actually I hadn't thought about how I was going to pay for it, which <laughs> kind of goes to who I am, but I, I wasn't really sure. And then out of the blue, one of the, the deacons in our old church wrote to me and said, I want to pay for your MA. And he just sent me two checks and I ask myself, well, why is it that some people are so amazingly generous? And the answer is always because they recognize that they can trust God with their finances. They can give it away, and God will always make sure that they're taken care of. And not only that, they believe that God will bless them in eternity, which is what Jesus says. He says, God will reward you for these things. You think about the people who are most generous. That's true of them. Think about the people who are most bold in their Christian life. I mean, people who are gunning for it. What is it that makes them so stand out, so different? It's that they, they really believe that God's going to back them up when they obey him, when they do his will, when they take God at his word. And yeah, they might experience moments of wavering or doubt, but when it really comes down to it, they decide to trust God. You think about the people who are most self-sacrificial. They say in their heart, I know that God exalts the humble. So I know that as I serve others and pour out my life for others and take the lowest place, as Jesus told us to do, he said that God exalts the humble. Now that's a trust thing, that's a faith thing, isn't it? Where you say, I don't need to jostle for greatness in life and for position and, and, and attain to being the leader of men and someone who is recognized and adored by people. I can, like Jesus did, I can wash people's feet. I can take the lowest place. Why? Because by faith, I believe that God blesses that. It's always a faith decision. Every time you see something you admire in another Christian or in yourself. That's one reason why faith matters, because of what it allows you to do. But here's another. Because of what faith says about the God that you believe in. I sometimes look around and see greater passion in people for causes which I think are of relative inconsequence in comparison with the cause of Christ. But giving more of themselves, more of their passion, more of their life, and more of their devotion to these things than we do to Jesus. I don't say it to condemn, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, I care about the planet, but you sometimes see the absolute fanatical devotion some people have for ecological causes. You think about people, absolute fanatical devotion people have to human rights or to animal rights or to, you know, football, whatever. <laughs> you know, anything. And you think, <laughs> when, someone, when someone dedicates that degree of passion 
and self-sacrifice and devotion to a cause, you don't have to agree with them to admire their passion and their devotion, right? And, and not just their passion and devotion, but it also makes you think about the cause. It makes you think about the thing they're passionate about. In some way, it glorifies the thing that they're passionate about and willing to sacrifice for. Even your worst enemies, the people we most disagree with. Sometimes you can still stop and ponder and think, well, their degree of passion for that, man, in some ways it glorifies the thing they live for. And I think this is God's deepest concern when he looks at his people and he wants you to be someone who exercises faith in him and trust in him and belief in him. God cares most about how that reflects on his own glory because he, he made creations the theater of his glory. We see his glory in all the beauty around us and all the love we see in, in, in the church and in humankind and in Christ. He made creation as a theater of his glory. And when we, as people, just to put it negatively, when we cannot trust God, what does that say about the God that we believe in? When you are determined to live a safe life, a life that cannot obey Him, a life that cannot lay down sin, a life that cannot trust Him with your future, that cannot pray, that cannot give, that cannot obey. What are you preaching about the God that you believe in? You're saying that He's not trustworthy. You're saying He's not good. You're saying that He doesn't care. But when, by God's grace, He starts to shift that in your heart and you you are able to live a life of devotion to Him, passion for him, of love for him, of self-sacrifice, of generosity and boldness and prayer and everything that we, we know we're called to as Christians. Without even realizing it, you're preaching to everyone around you that God is trustworthy. We know he's trustworthy. The Bible tells us that he doesn't need to prove it again to us because he gave us Jesus and he allowed his son to be put on the cross to save you. What more does God need to do to demonstrate his absolute passionate commitment to you? Nothing more. This is why faith matters to him. Because our faith preaches to the world about who God is and how great he is and how much he loves us. I want us to get to our last question here. In some ways, this is maybe the the most tricky and most complicated. So at this point, I need you to Wake up. I know some of you have been flying overnight and just arrived, and I apologize in advance, so you need to, you need to really um, clue into what I'm trying to say here. Here's the question. Is faith reasonable? You know, we, we talked a little about this at the beginning. But in some ways, this is where, as Christians, we're most mocked and uh, disregarded and, and, and often disliked, is because people think that our faith is groundless. You know, it's great talking about this in theory, living a life for God, but what if God's not even there? It's wonderful living a life of self-sacrifice and generosity and devotion and all these things, but what if it's all just a totally misguided delusion? This is where we're most criticized and mocked. And what does he say here in verse 3? He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And I want to turn this around and say to you, I think... In many ways, this is where our faith is most easily justified, most easily proven. See, people say to us, you know, we don't need God anymore. God is a useless hypothesis. 
when we can explain why we're here, how we got here, and where we came from without ever calling upon a theory about a God, then why do we need faith anymore? We have science, we have intelligence, we have advance, we have the modern world. I want to ask, how do we answer that, friends? Because I know that some of you wrestle on a day-to-day basis just with very fundamental doubts about the faith that you have in God. And some of you are not even there yet. You're not even sure if God's there, and you don't even know if you want to give your life to this thing called Christianity. How can we possibly come at this and say, listen, our faith is not just nonsense beliefs? Doesn't it... (laughs) I want to get a little bit mildly philosophical with you here, and uh, some of you love that, some of you hate it, just take your vitamins, this is important stuff. Here's what I want to say to you. First of all, we need to realize that whatever someone believes about how this universe got here, and how we got here, they are exercising faith. What do I mean? Well, if faith is the conviction of things not seen, did anybody see the universe come into being? No. Did anyone see how we arrived here? No, we didn't. We pieced together ideas and theories and construct a narrative, a story. And then we buy into that story by faith. Everyone has a faith step about how they believe this universe came into being in the first place. And we need to be clear about that because a lot of people want to put faith against science and philosophy and solid things. They they see it. And I say that's a false dichotomy. We all have faith. We all exercise faith. Here's the second thing you need to realize. And this is where it gets a bit more direct. Any account that doesn't involve God, of how we got here and how this universe got here and what what we're here for, is is totally unreasonable and totally irrational. I'm not speaking here, by the way, friends, about I'm not talking here about evolution, or creation, or any of that stuff. I'm just talking about mere existence. I began with that psalm, that the heavens declare the glory of God. It's my conviction that everyone deep in their, the deepest part of their gut should know that there is a God, that he made us, that he put this world together. And I think that you can, if you really think hard about it, you, you, you don't really have an alternative. Think of it this way. How on earth do you explain the fact that there is anything at all? You know, one of the most accepted, solid laws of physics is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, the law of cause and effect. And if you trace back everything that is now, you can find a succession of causes that go all the way back to the beginning of time. Nothing just happens out of the blue, in other words. And so you ask, well, how how on earth did the universe start? You know, the answer might be that there was was an explosion, a, a great big bang. You say, well, what caused the big bang that began it all? The answer might be, well, there was, there was a singularity. Now, please don't ask me to explain it, because I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't think any of us do. <laughs> but where the laws of physics and all this thing didn't apply at the beginning of time. And then there was explosion. But, then you, well, but what caused that? 
What was before that? And at this point, someone, if they're honest, they have to come down to one of two conclusions. Either they say, there was no cause. There was a beginning, but it was totally uncaused, and it just erupted into existence. Which, I say, is completely irrational, because that goes against everything we know about the world that we're in. How can things just self-generate and exist when there was nothing before them? It's irrational. Okay, so what's your alternative to that? Your alternative is you say, well, the universe has existed for an infinite time into the past. We can trace back and back and back into infinity, gone. And in the words of Vizzini and Princess Bride, that is inconceivable. (laughs) If you can get your head around that and believe it, then good for you. But basically, we all know that the universe can't be eternal. It can't go back as far as it's going to go forward. You start to think about that too much, you'll get dizzy and collapse. (laughs) But as Christians, we say, no. Okay, the most common sense, the most rational, the most reasonable explanation for why there is anything at all has to be rooted in something or someone that is uncreated, that is by nature infinite, that can be the first cause of everything that is. And that is what the Bible says. That's what this verse says about God. It says that he spoke the universe into being, and we take that by faith, so that what is seen, matter, something that is by nature finite and and not eternal, came out of what is not seen, the God who existed before time and does not have to be explained and cannot be explained away. Friends, I I don't think that that is a, a cuckoo way of thinking. In fact, the Bible says that everyone in their heart of hearts knows it to be true. In Romans 1, it says that God's invisible attributes, his power and and divine nature have been seen since the beginning of the world. That everyone in their honest moments knows that there's a God and that they try and suppress that and push it down and ignore it so that it doesn't have any claim on their life. But if you're someone who accepts it, don't give in to the idea that you're a fool or a stupid person. You're not. This is why Psalm 19 said that the heavens declare the glory of God. That all you must do is open your heart and your mind to the wonder of it all and realize that without understanding that a God made it, we have nothing. We have no explanation. We have no meaning. Just a void. So friends, when we wind this back into what does this mean to our day-to-day experience of and walk with God, which is our prime concern here, it follows, I think this is what he's trying to say here, it follows that once you've accepted that God made it all, everything else should be, by comparison, fairly easy to believe. And you get to choose from here on. This is why the Bible starts with those words. In the beginning, God created. Doesn't try to explain God. Doesn't try to justify him. Doesn't try to account for his existence. How can we? But it says that once you've accepted that first thing, that God made us, made the world, made the universe, all other kinds of faith in him become not only acceptable, but common sense. If God made us, if God made this, 
that we are in, then friend, you are a smart person when you put your faith and your trust in this God. And our conviction needs to be that we get to choose to a degree how we live in relation to this God. If you're not a Christian today, you know, if you, if you don't put your faith in God, you are putting your faith in something. Have you ever asked yourself what that thing is? Whether you can justify that thing, whether you can prove that thing. And I think when people really, in their, in their most honest moments, think about it, it's very hard to do so. And I want to encourage you, friends, God has been speaking to you. He's been speaking to you from the moment you were born. He's been showing you his love. He's been showing you his existence. The very fact that you're here today is testimony to the fact that God is on your case, that he brought you, that he's speaking to you. And if anything of what I've said today resonates with you, it's because God is trying to call out to you. Most of us here are Christian. We know and love Jesus. And I only want to close with this encouragement. God wants us to live for this commendation. By faith, the people of old received their commendation. I know that you may have been wrestling, because I think we always are wrestling with decisions and doubts and frustrations. And God would encourage you that the best rule of thumb to guide you in life is what requires faith? What course of action requires me to trust God and believe his words and believe he's true? And the reason, of course, why we think that God is reliable always comes back to what we understand this meal to be about. The reason why God is telling you to repent of that sin and walk away from it is because he's, he's made plain that he loves you and he has a better plan for you and the fact that he gave Jesus to you. The reason why God wants you to live a life of confident prayer and faith and trust in him is because he, he gave Jesus to you and he shows you that he cares about you and he listens to you. The reason why he wants you to live a life of devotion to his church and devotion to the gospel, and a life of witness, and a life of serving, and a life of sharing this truth that we've come to believe. It's because he gave you Jesus. And he promises you and says, this is how you can spend your life for eternal gain rather than eternal loss. So as we take communion, look, only you know what it is in your life that most reveals your lack of faith in God. And we all have those areas in our heart that we need to talk to God about and deal with. Only you know. But as we take communion, I want to encourage you to have those dealings with God. I want to encourage you to pray to him and ask him, Lord, I want you to replace my unbelief, my doubt, my fear, my anxiety, and my lack of trust with a total conviction that you do what you say. That I can rely on you entirely, love you wholeheartedly, and live for your glory.